Hi there, welcome to Can You Feel It? This podcast aims at expanding our intellectual horizons. I am Jeanne Proust, and I'd like to pull philosophy down from its academic ivory tower by deciphering and discussing philosophical texts and ideas with you. Let's instill some thinking in our life to better feel and philosophize around. In this episode, we will discuss various views that challenge our praising of work over leisure and the very definition of what leisure is supposed to be. Like most of my generation, I was brought up on the saying, Satan finds some mischief still for idle hands to do. Being a highly virtuous child, I believed all that I was told and acquired a conscience which has kept me working hard down to the present moment. But although my conscience has controlled my actions, my opinions have undergone a revolution. I think that there is far too much work done in the world, that immense harm is caused by the belief that work is virtuous, and that what needs to be preached in modern industrial countries is quite different from what always has been preached. Leisure is essential to civilization, and in former times, leisure for the few was only rendered possible by the labors of the many. But their labors were valuable, not because work is good, but because leisure is good. And with modern technique, it would be possible to distribute leisure justly, without injury to civilization. There is no longer any reason why the bulk of the population should suffer this deprivation. Only a foolish asceticism, usually vicarious, makes us continue to insist on work in excessive quantities now that the need no longer exists. When I suggest that working hours should be reduced to four, I am not meaning to imply that all the remaining time should necessarily be spent in pure frivolity. I mean that four hours work a day should entitle a man to the necessities and elementary comforts of life, and that the rest of his time should be his to use as he might see fit. It is an essential part of any such social system that education should be carried further than it usually is at present, and should aim, in part, at providing tastes which would enable a man to use leisure intelligently. The pleasures of urban populations have become mainly passive, seeing cinemas, watching football matches, listening to the radio, and so on. This results from the fact that their active energies are fully taken up with work. If they had more leisure, 
they would again enjoy pleasures in which they took an active part. The road to happiness and prosperity lies in an organized diminution of work. I just read various excerpts from The Conquest of Happiness, published in 1930, and from In Praise of Idleness, published in 1935, both written by Bertrand Russell. Our modern age has seen the glorification of speed take proportions that beg us to question not only the value of this supposed optimization of time, of efficiency and productivity, but also, by contrast, the social blame weighing upon idleness. The current pandemic has also forced some people to realize their unpreparedness for an inability to endure an imposed surplus of leisure time for the privileged ones who were lucky enough to not have to constantly worry about finances. In fact, if COVID brought one positive thing, if, you know, in certain lucky people's life, it might be that it forced them to slow down, to put into perspective the alertness and compulsive acceleration that our economy dictates. The pressure of work performance in the narcissistic society, this burnout society we live in, might have led to unfortunate misunderstanding as to the definition of happiness, now closely linked to an ideology of quantitatively measured success and achievement. Could we learn how to reevaluate our time by not being so afraid of wasting it? Why do we despise lazy people? Are there types of laziness we could differentiate? First, we're going to examine what exactly is this value we give to work. Where does it come from? Historically, from the 18th century onward, there is this modern glorification of work. Political leaders, moral authorities, and even philosophers, such as Locke, Adam Smith, even Marx, have tried to convince us that work is valuable per se. Some of the positive arguments we come across might be about the fact that work makes us become a somebody or relish the esteem we gain. It structures our lives. It contributes nobly to human progress or economical growth, to the common good even. It makes us feel useful or efficient. We have an active public life. It makes the most out of our potential. In ECHO, we find some negative arguments against the supposed nemesis of work, laziness. The very common, though not always admitted, perception of people out of work or down on their luck is that they are lazy. They are being perceived as antisocial parasites. The capitalist society we live in needs to stigmatize laziness because it slows down the productivity logic we have to surrender to. There is a structural blame here that affects our individual perspective on people who don't work. This moral blame on lazy people actually has more of an ancient history. If you look at the list of the seven Christian deadly sins, you have pride as the first one, then greed, then lust, then envy, then gluttony, then wrath, and finally sloth. So, 
Each of these can be overcome with the seven corresponding virtues, humility, charity, chastity, gratitude, temperance, patience, and diligence, okay? So sometimes pride has been seen as the mother of all vices, but sometimes sloth as well, because of what Russell was saying, the devil makes work for idle hands. A little parenthesis here on what capital sins are. They are called capital sins, or main sins, from which all the others derive. So why not murder or rape as a deadly sin, as a capital sin? Well, because the capital sins we just listed are the head, caput in Latin means the head. They're the top of the list. They're the sources of all evil. But are they really still to be considered as the main sources of evil? Observing our Western society in today's economy, the way we perceive these sins seems to have changed quite a bit. So if you look at pride, greed, lust, gluttony, I mean, all of these supposed sins are actually in a way quite praised in the society we live in. Now let's look back at the very peculiar status of sloth. Almost all deadly sins have to do with excess. But sloth is not about committing immorality, but about omitting responsibilities. It's not about an excess of desire, but about an annihilation of all desires. So sloth is the failure to do things that one should do. Originally, it had to do with wasting the seven gifts of grace given by the Holy Spirit, such as wisdom, understanding, counsel, knowledge, piety, fortitude, and fear of the Lord. This neglect of duties is what sloth was about, a failure to do things that one should do. By this definition, evil exists when good people fail to act. As a matter of fact, sloth was not even part of the original list. Before, it was asedia, which can be transferred by negligence or indifference. Literally, it means without care, being careless. Asedia was this spiritual torpor, often translated again by sadness, despair or melancholy. It's really the lack of any feeling, the inability to be affected by anything. And sloth, in a way, relates to asedia because it is a deficiency of love. It is some withdrawal from the world. It leads to apathy, sluggish thought process, so it was thought. Physically, it can lead also to idleness, the inability to move and therefore to work. It all makes laziness look like a task avoidance, so to say, which we shouldn't forget can be actually triggered more by a fear of failure, perhaps caused by an unrealistic desire for perfectionism, not by a mere negligence or indifference, as it's supposed to be. So from a simple moral blame, we actually observe then a progressive shift towards the medicalization of laziness, as this apathy or discouragement or melancholy. So going back to the initial asedia, in the original list of sins, asedia was said to lead to suicide, which is another terrible sin that needs to be avoided. And laziness is closely related to that. Sloth becomes depression. It is the only sin 
that consumer society still needs to stigmatize because it slows down the productivity logic. So what are the dangers of overestimating the moral virtue of busyness, of being busy with work? Aside from the enormous amount of stress it generates, it also participates in our craving for recognition. It's like we build our identity or self-esteem based on the approval of others via our work and our work ethics. The effort, the time we dedicate to work, is often closely monitored by our employers and sometimes even by our family members. Employees would stay extra hours at their desk or skip their lunch to show how dedicated to their work they are. Some might say that the old Protestant masochism is still very much at play in the pride we take at suffering. On another note, the question, what do you do for work, seems to be essential if we are to know what type of person we're facing, as if our profession defined us in a way. It also often hides how much do you make, or is it serious work, the type of work in which you are a busy person, a businessman, a businesswoman. Another thing is that being constantly busy with work can create an addiction to the point that some people are not able to rest after a long period of intensive work. There are severe psychotic episodes that have happened. Other people could rest, but only if prescribed by a doctor to do so. Another thing, again, is that there is a system of bargaining that develops. Work and leisure become part of a reward and punishment balance. Rest is something that has to be earned somehow, but that no one knows how to use. The productivity ideology rubs off activities we indulge into during our leisure or social life, but we'll get back to that. A lot of philosophers address these questions. You can find that in Paul Lafargue, The Right to be Lazy, in Russell, as we have been seeing, where he argues that if labor was equitably shared out amongst everyone, resulting in shorter workdays, unemployment would actually decrease and human happiness and civilization would progress due to the increase of leisure time, further resulting in an increase of involvement in the arts and sciences. A lot of anti-capitalist movements or thinkers glorify even the cessation of all work. But let's ask ourselves then, how will we employ our time? And what laziness, leisure or idleness are we really talking about here? Let's see what we are not talking about. We are not talking about a pure diversion or divertissement, as Pascal puts it, where leisure is being hijacked by the capitalist economy. Our concern for leisure today seems to be so intertwined for many people to our efficiency in working. We use our vacation time to recharge the batteries, to address some level of emotional well-being and gear up for a return to work. 
Leisure in this way is incorporated into the world of work. It is not a subversion of it. We are not talking either about task avoidance out of fear of failure, often caused, as I mentioned earlier, by an unrealistic desire for perfectionism triggered by social pressure to perform one's job efficiently or in an optimal way. We are not talking about either complacent softness, a weak other type of narcissism, the absence of any effort to constrain oneself or to be demanding with oneself, the refusal to keep promises, for instance, or the irreliability, the flakiness, the irresponsibility or negligence that lead us to be indifferent to other people. So we're not talking about this type of lazy selfishness of most of us when we are indifferent to others in their environment. The vast majority of people are not willing or open to jeopardize their comfort to help others out. And that is a certain type of laziness we are obviously not promoting here. Again, another type of laziness we are not promoting has to do with intellectual laziness a sort of passivity that encourages cognitive bias. This type of laziness is extremely dangerous and can only lead to blind conformism and the easy strengthening of old prejudices. What we are talking about is a rehabilitation of idleness as a means to contemplation and thinking, an intelligent leisure of sorts, as Russell was saying. To stop working is not to do nothing, it can be being useless in economical terms, but not pure nothingness, not pure passivity. So reevaluating leisure in that sense is a means to contemplation, to thinking, instead of blindly keeping busy. Leisure might be closely connected to relaxation, but it actually has a more extensive and more active general application and implication. So relaxation is to remit attention or effort, to become less diligent, to unbend, to seek recreation or rest. Whereas leisure is more about finding the opportunity and freedom to do something. It's time that is free from employment, at once command, free from engagement, or a period of unengaged time and ease. So I don't resist here to throw some wise quotes in the picture, such as Socrates uh, speaking about leisure as the best of all possessions, or the Epicurean proverb that says that it is better to lie on the naked ground and be at ease than to have a golden coach and a rich table and be worried. If we look back at history this time before Christianity, if we look at the Greeks, the Greeks despised work. It was for slaves. What they promoted was osium. Osium has this negative definition somehow as retirement, as withdrawing from active public life. But it was actually the positive term initially. And the opposed term was negotium, the negation of osium. Negotium, which then gave the word negotiation, and in French, negos, négociant, the commerce or the merchant. Osium or otium has to do with a joyful and fulfilling retirement. 
It reminds me of the Spanish translation for retirement, which is jubilación, the time for jubilation. And since we are doing some etymology here, let me stick in there that travail, work in French, comes from the Latin tripalium, which was actually a torture instrument consisting of three stakes. A couple of years ago, I realized I needed to st stop working at the pace I had been for many decades. And in the process of doing that, I, I needed to separate myself from seeking the approval of other people and the need to monetize or my sense of reward from monetizing my efforts and my investment of gifts or skills. So in doing that, I realized that I needed to be very authentic in terms of how, with myself, in terms of how I was um, evaluating what I was doing. And that meant that I had to stop multitasking. I think that I spent a lifetime trying to fulfill a number of different tasks and roles simultaneously. And by almost disciplining myself to stop and do one thing very intently and consciously at a time. And it could be as simple as doing the laundry or prepping the vegetables to um, doing my artwork where I was not trying to think about anything else but what I was doing with my hands and my eyes. And I found an intense satisfaction and joy, um, a, a sense of, of peace that I had maybe forgotten about. It was almost a childlike um, awakening to being... Um, totally me and not worried about anything on the outside world, judging who I was, what I was doing, the value of what I was doing. I was personally satisfied with what I was accomplishing. And it could, you know, and it could be as simple as chores or it was as complex as artwork. And I, I walked away with it with a sense of like, this is truly being aware and alive. So withdrawing from one's daily business, from one's negotium, which is again the negation of osium, withdrawing from one's daily affairs, 
is supposed to help you engage in activities that were considered to be artistically or intellectually valuable. For instance, speaking or writing or doing philosophy, obviously. Leisure in that sense leads to better reflection, better feeling of being present, to taste the present for what it is, which is a very difficult thing to do. We usually ruminate over the past or project ourselves onto the future all the time. As Pascal says, we never live, but we rather hope to live. Nous ne vivons jamais, mais nous espérons de vivre. Pascal, who also said that the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. Laziness brings another conception of time that allows for intellectual engagement, for philosophy. And as Hobbes was saying, leisure is the mother of philosophy. It is not passive in that sense. But it is hard to switch on this contemplative or creative mode. Paradoxically, it does require an effort. An effort to get away from the possible guilt we might feel because of this social pressure we talked about. An effort to not project ourselves into the next plan activity, project ourselves into the future. An effort also because the possibility of boredom creates panic somehow. And free time gives way to introspective moments that also you may want to avoid. The lucidity about yourself that it might bring can possibly be painful. It is also terrifying in a way because of the unknown, of the open range of possibilities it opens. If you are free to choose whatever you want to do, you are also responsible for making a good use of this time. This fear of increased autonomy is created by this leisure time that we are trying to promote here. So we do need to build habits, skills for laziness, not in a productive sense, nor in a battery charging sense, nor in a vain entertainment passive sense, but in a way that makes us able to feel okay when we're simply thinking or contemplating, bubbling, resting, dreaming, we should do that for ourselves, but also for the children to come, which many parents insist on enrolling in after-school classes. They want their children to speak German or Greek and play piano perfectly by the age of 10, etc. So this anxiety that we communicate to our children is also something that should be of concern. Achievement, success, is often measured quantitatively. How many tasks, how many goals, how many emails answered today, how much money was made, in how much time. Leisure, when not hijacked by the productivity ideology, has been associated with a passive idleness, with loafing or inertia, with uselessness. Our obsession with work the dangers of which, having already been denounced by many philosophers such as Paul Lafargue or Bertrand Russell or Bing Chul Han, might be perpetuating the grossest form of self-deception. By looking at the specific history behind the meaning of sloth, for instance, in the Christian tradition, we were trying to debunk here some deeply rooted taboos surrounding the fear of unemployment in a psychological sense, unemployment, when our skills or labor force are freed from engagement. 
While we shall not fall prey to a blind celebration of laziness for its own sake, we need to explore the guilt and fear mechanisms that prevent us from increasing our autonomy in a contemplative and perhaps also radically creative way. Thank you for listening to Can You Feel It? A podcast where we explore the world with a philosophical lens. Many thanks to my partner Johnny Nicholson for producing, recording and editing the podcast, as well as composing all of the music. Stay tuned for the next episode.